Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and is coming. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Look, the day is coming, burning like a blast furnace. and All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. The day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord of armies. A day that will not leave behind a root or branch for them. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise, and there will be healing in its wings. You will go up and jump around like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked. They will surely be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I take action, says the Lord of armies. This is the word of our Lord. If we translate the Hebrew literally, the Hebrew language of verse 3, it comes out on the very day that I myself am making. It's not God's going to make it all of a sudden. Everything is culminating in that. Just as after Adam and Eve fell into sin, everything was building up to Christ taking on human flesh. Now, even since Adam and Eve fell into sin, Christ taking on human flesh, it's all building up to that last day. So our sermon theme for today is everything culminates in Judgment Day. I have to tell you, when I was a young man, Judgment Day used to really scare me. And I had to study it. I had to come to know it because at that time there were a lot of books and they were popular and they were even basing movies on Judgment Day that were based not on the Bible, but on the, shall we say, translator or artist's own individual interpretation of Revelation that oftentimes even could be seen in its own context as being a false understanding of that book of Revelation. So it scares people, it scares believers, and this is why when I take new members through a Bible information class, people who are new to Christianity, we spend some time in that, and when we go over it, they go, oh, that was so scary for me, but now that I'm a believer, as long as I stay in the faith, it's not scary at all. However, it is going to be scary for unbelievers, and the irony is they don't care, they don't believe that day's coming, they don't believe it pertains to them, but on that day they were trembling. That's where our text begins. He says, for pay very close attention. The day is coming, which is a consuming blaze like an oven. You can build a fire. You can roast meat over it. But an oven, if it's designed right, the kind that's described here is designed to take oxygen and funnel it into the fire, to funnel it into the coals, kind of like a blacksmith's forge where they, they pump it and the oxygen gets on it and it gets hot enough that you can heat metal red hot and pound it together. Well, the oven's not designed to be that hot, but it is designed to be hotter than a regular fire. When Christ returns, judgment day. Everything's going to be burned up. That's it. This world is going to be destroyed. He's going to make it anew. That's scary for the unbelievers because we're told, and so all the proud and doers of wickedness will become chaff. Who are the proud? We can really divide the proud up into very, uh, diff various categories. I'll, I'll start with those who today outright reject there's a God. When I went to a secular university, I had professors who, they had not read the Bible. They didn't understand it. They weren't believers, but they were bent on trying to take uh, college-age kids and make them hate God. And a lot of the purpose, the ones that they succeeded with, those are kids whose parents didn't bring them to church regularly, didn't do devotions at home. Church was almost something when we didn't have camping and hunting and snowmobiling. And when we didn't have other things to do, we'll go to church at Christmas and stuff. And they could turn those kids. But those people are arrogant because they don't think they need God. And it's funny when you turn on and listen to some of the popular scientists who are God-hating scientists. You hear the arrogance, and sometimes it seems like if you listen to their arguments... 
They actually do believe there's a God. They just think they're smarter than him, pointing out what they think are flaws in, in creation and stuff, missing the fact that God subjected this world to decay so that we don't get too attached to it. So the, you have the outright unbeliever and to those who would like to tell God how to be God, and that's the proud. You can see people of other religions who, for example, think that because you don't believe in their God, you're an infidel, and they need to come in and blow you up and everybody in your worship building. Boy, there's, there's an arrogance, isn't it? There's, there's really a helpless God if he needs other people to do the killing for himself, right? But you know, you can even find the proud in the Christian church, the visible Christian church, not the invisible. Because the natural religion that is built into us, the devil's greatest lie, is the idea that we earn our salvation. And if you truly follow through and understand that idea, you're going to get pretty arrogant, aren't you? Because if you follow it through, then God owes you salvation. Lord, I made the right decision at the right time. Lord, look at how much work I, Lord, I taught Sunday school for years. You owe this to me. These are people who stand before the Lord and say, I got this coming. I'm entitled to this. Guess what? Those people aren't trusting in salvation. And an example of that is what we covered in last week's Reformation service when indulgences were being sold. They thought people were so holy they had extra good works they could give to people. There's the proud. People thought if they bought it, then they earned their salvation. There is the proud. And sadly, again, with Christians in visible churches, if they're not trusting 100% that Christ did all the work, they're not even truly converted. Because the true Christian recognizes, I can't stand before God and tell him how to judge me. I can't stand before God and tell him how to be God. I'm unholy. And if God is going to be fair, if he's not gracious, the truth of the matter is he should send me to hell for all eternity right now. I'm his creation, and I don't love him with all my heart. That crushes our pride. Anybody who has any other thoughts than that, they're the proud. But he continues, and doers of wickedness. Let's admit it. Even after God crushes your and my pride so that we become believers, we have a sinful nature and we do wickedness. Our sinful nature is right there even though we have a new man to trip us up. Gulp, we'd be in trouble. And he says, we'll become chaff. In those days after you harvested the wheat and you, and you kind of crushed it up, you'd throw it up into the air with kind of a pitchfork and the wind would blow all the stuff that was that you weren't going to eat away, but, but the seed would remain. Now you'd then grind up the seed for flour, but then you'd take that, the wind would only blow it so far, that shaft that's left over, and guess what you used to fuel the fire that you would bake your bread? So God here is describing an eternity in hell in which it's already an oven, but then the people who end up in hell, they have only themselves to blame. They didn't trust in God. They knew better than God. They end up actually being part of the fuel for the fire. He says, and so the day which is coming will burn them up. And then he says, the Lord of multitudes has said it. Now, God said, let there be light. God has all the power. All creation is his. That's why the devil was so dumb to rebel against him, because God could just look at him right and put an end to that. On top of that, he created the angels. As Jesus said, he could call on legions of angels to stop his crucifixion. He was crucified for you and me. And look at the plagues God used against Egypt. God could call things like locusts to serve as his army. The point here when God says the Lord of multitudes is God is promising it and he's saying, 
all of creation is at his disposal. In case our imaginations are too limited to understand, God can simply speak the word. He, has, he can turn all of creation into his army. It's not going to change. Now, this was a comfort for me, and it should be a comfort for you. Because I used to wonder what happens if the people in hell overcome the Lord. God says, not going to happen. A thousand years into eternity, which then doesn't make sense because a thousand years, but uh, would not be eternity, right? But well into eternity, the devil's not going to rebel. And in fact, he says at the end, so that there will neither leave a root or a branch behind for them. And there you can think of the Hollywood movie where the guy is, or the gal is being swept down a, a whitewater river and, and there's a waterfall at the edge and, and they know when they go over that waterfall, even if they survive the crushing waters, it's going to break their neck because it's such a fall. And suddenly there's a root that, uh, of a tree that's been growing out or a tree branch and they're able to grab a hold of that and they're safe. God's saying that's not going to be the case. It's going to be burned up and there's going to be nothing, nothing left. They are going to hell for all eternity. Now, when I talked about some of those movies and books that were popular that really scare believers and they shouldn't because they're false books. That's one of the sad things. One of the most common end of times theologies found in America is called uh, premillennial dispensationalism. You don't need to know that term. But it shows many of those people who believe in that, they show Christ coming and Christ rapturing. And, and ultimately, if you follow through, it's saying a second chance for those who reject the Lord and a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance. God says, no, this world is your time of grace. Judgment day either comes when you die or when Christ returns. It's one or the other. That's your judgment day. And if the Holy Spirit's not in your heart, it's your fault. You get the blame. You get eternity in hell. No second chances. Now, again, when you've heard me tell the story before, when I worked at the prison, when I, there were devil worship was, was very popular. One inmate who even read curses on me that never happened out of the satanic Bible one time was in a security position where an officer had to sit in front of him and watch him all night. And that officer got to talking to him and asked him, why do you worship the devil? And he said, well, I think that the devil will grant him some powers where he'd be able to escape. And the officer pointed out to him, uh, okay, so you escape the temporal punishment of prison, and he was doing a life sentence, so that you can exchange an eternity and burning in hell. Why would you say, well, I don't believe that. So see, I think that, the, that, that ultimately the devil will be able to trick God, and he'll overpower God, and then I'll be able to trick the devil, and I'll overpower the devil. Now, there's a lot of ifs there. But the irony is, such stupid thinking is exactly what the devil thought on the day he rebelled against the Lord shortly after the seventh day of creation. Didn't pan out for him, did it? God here is saying, I'm the Lord of multitudes. There's no second chance. They're never getting out of hell. So everything culminates in judgment day, and that's an eternity of wrath for unbelievers. Period. End of discussion. But the opposite is true for believers. We're told, and yet a son, which is righteousness with healing rays, will rise for those who have reverent awe for my name. And you say, how can the son have healing rays? The light of the sun, for example, uh, the ultraviolet light kills things like the coronavirus. In fact, it kills it nearly instantly unless it's wrapped in a mucus pocket. And then it can take up to three minutes to dry it out enough for that ultraviolet light to, to, to get to it. Yeah. The sun has healing. Your vitamin, your, when, you're, when your body's exposed to it, it produces vitamin D that helps you fight off certain things as well. 
And the sun here, we can think of the sun of God. The glory of God shining upon us. It's already shown upon you because God has sent someone to share with you the good news of salvation in Christ. And he's already sent his Holy Spirit into your heart so that you fear his name. Now, that means different things. And I'll use the institution of fatherhood, not like our present postmodern world likes to, uh, likes to show where deadbeat dads abandon their kids and things like that, but a decent father, one who loves his children and provides for them. The children have a respect for dad, but they also know when they've screwed up and mom says, wait till your father gets home, then they have a fear. Uh-oh, but not a, I don't love God. Dad, it's the discipline will be there. So God's name tells you, and there's many different names he lists of himself in the Bible. They tell you what God does for you because he loves you. So unbelievers will fear God's name on judgment day. <laughs> That's the real God, Jesus. That means savior and I rejected him. But for you with faith, you know God, God's names tell you that he works to save you. But in this life, you have a sinful nature. In the next life, when Christ returns, whether it's your judgment day or when Christ returns, He's going to rip your sinful nature free. Boom. You'll never have to struggle with that again. There's a big healing. And on judgment day, he is going to give all believers glorified bodies. We will never have to fight with sin again. In fact, he's going to recreate the heavens and the earth. And all sin, all the impact of the world being subjected to decay, gone. We will never cry or weep over things. We're not going to know sadness. We're not going to know pain. We're not going to know heartache. Because he has, will have touched us with the healing rays and it will all change. So there's an eternity of joy. And then we're told, and so you will go out and then you will spring about like calves from the stall. Now we put calves in a barn to keep them safe from the elements, but you also can put them in a stall to fatten them up. But that stall limits their space. When they're allowed to go outside, all of a sudden they can, they can roam on the grass, they can run around and they can play. And that's the picture of what the new heavens and new earth and, and you are going to be like in them with, with your glorified body. Because you're never going to have to wrestle with that sinful nature again. He's never going to trip you up. You'll never fall into him again. And so for you and I, everything, and for all the world, everything culminates in judgment day. It's an eternity of wrath for unbelievers, but it's an eternity of joy and true freedom for believers. Then verse 3 says, And then you guys will tread those who are wicked, since they will be dust under the soles of you guys' feet on the very day that I myself am making. The Lord of multitudes has spoken. That Hebrew word dust, oftentimes people translate it as ash because in verse 1 we're told that they're going to be uh, fuel for the fire. But when you go outside, you got shoes on, you don't even think about the soil you're walking on, right? Unless it's a really muddy day. You don't even think about it. It doesn't even bother you. And that's the point. I used to, and, and I still sometimes, it, because of the urgency, anybody who is an unbeliever, when, when they die or when Christ comes, whenever their judgment day is, which one comes first, they're going to hell. If you truly love a friend, if you truly love a neighbor, if you truly love a relative, you're not going to sit back and say, well, um, if, I, if I tell them they're headed to hell and that they need a Savior and they have a Savior, if I tell them that, they'll never talk to me again. Because if you don't share with them, there's an eternity of hell. And I, yet, I often think, what about, I have relatives that I know, unless things change, they, they've confessed they're unbelievers. I don't want to see them in hell. But it's a comfort to know that if they don't change their ways, I have shared the word of God with them. And it's not going to bother me in heaven because I will be perfectly happy. And the same thing for you. You won't even think about them. They'll be beneath us, dust on the ground. And, and again, I, I used to wonder, what happens 
Now again, eternity won't really have years, will it? But a thousand years into eternity, what if I fall into sin and lose heaven? The Lord of multitudes has spoken. He promises no. And the rest of scripture makes it clear. You'll be confirmed in your holiness so that you won't ever be able to sin. So sin's going to be gone. And those who would cause that, as I already said, they're never going to be able to rebel and get out of heaven. God has made that promise and he's too powerful. So we see evil will no longer bother believers. And that's a joy because that means no cancer, no sorrow, no death, no pain, no agony. A joy and a bliss beyond compare that we can't even imagine in this life. Everything culminates in Judgment Day. Sadly, the unbelievers should already be afraid, but they're not. Then when Christ returns, they're going to go, uh, gulp, that's God, that was the Savior. And yeah, I rejected him, either trusting in some of my own works, all of my own works, or denying I even needed a Savior. So that's an eternity of wrath for unbelievers. For those who trust in Christ, it's an eternity of joy and freedom. That's for believers, and evil will no longer bother us. Praise be to our Lord and Savior. Amen. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.